What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Future Projection Podcast, a Baseball America podcast that's being resuscitated and revived in the new year. It's 2023. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined, as always, by my great co-host, Ben Badler. We are back on the mic, Ben. Uh, how, how does that feel, and how have you been? How's your new year? Are you excited for the season? I'm just excited to finally get back on this podcast and chat baseball with you, man. Yeah, very excited to be back. Very excited for 2023. Good draft year ahead. Just finished the prospect handbook process too. So it's good to, um, I think everybody else at BA probably took some time to unwind a little bit, but like, you know, we got January 15th, the international signing date coming up, uh, put out a 2024 top 100 ranking out today. So, uh, and then when you have a one-year-old it's not really a vacation when she's home from daycare for uh for a week but no it's been it's been a good uh good and very very busy uh, obviously several months so i'm glad we're able to get back on and and record again yeah i think one of my biggest goals this year is just to do this podcast consistently and, and sustainably so hopefully we can make that happen in the new year, uh, I really appreciate just the consistent feedback we get on on you guys just wanting to to hear this podcast, wanting to have more episodes. Um, so really, thank you for for that feedback. It it, it just makes us want to do it more. Um, not that we don't like doing it if we if we don't get positive feedback because I think it's just fun to to talk baseball. But hopefully, we will be back here on a regular basis, weekly podcast talking baseball. Maybe maybe the solution is that every episode doesn't necessarily need to be two and a half or three hours. But, um, you know, we like to have those long rambling conversations where we really get into the weeds on things. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, typically for us, the, the BA schedule as a whole is prospect handbook gets wrapped up and finished and sent to the printer in mid or late December. And then typically the staff gets a good week or so to just take some time off recharge. But as you mentioned for the international, the new international schedule for the draft schedule, it's really tough just to not do anything in in that week in late December because January starts and we're we're putting out preview content, we're updating our rankings. You mentioned that you have the class of 2024 updated list. I've started the Stockwatch series for the 2023 draft class already with our first round to-do lists. So there's just a lot that's going on and uh, I'm I'm excited that we're back and 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 getting into this portion of the schedule. I, I honestly think January and February are two of the more exciting months on the baseball calendar, just because you're kind of putting out all this work that you've spent the off season producing and vetting and researching and, and writing. Uh, and it's a new year and you're hopeful for what's to come and you're excited to get back to the field. So there's just a lot of like bubbling excitement that I always have this time of year. Um, we've got our 2023 stuff to talk about. We've got our 2024 stuff to talk about. We want to talk a little bit of prospect handbook as well on this podcast, but uh, what direction do you want to go first, Ben? Is there anything that you're uh, itching to discuss? Um, I'll let you kind of take it away from here and we can go wherever you want. Yeah. I mean, it's the new year, 2023 new draft cycle. It's like you said, I, I think during the season is, is fun because there's actual baseball being played and we're updating our, our rankings and our reports pretty frequently during the season, both for the amateur side and on the pro side with our, our top 30 updates for every club's farm system. 
but during the off season is, is when you get a little bit more time to kind of digest things. You have more time to make more calls around to scouts, player development, officials, um, you know, other industry contacts, uh, kind of sit back, watch more video, look over more of the the data that we get. So you, you just have a little bit more time to really sift through the information that that you have and be able to you know paint a more complete picture and 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 kind of reevaluate how how you see uh players compared to in the season where it's just such a such a frenetic pace of of trying to keep up with everything in addition to trying to um you know write up and and rank players at, at the same time uh, so I think sometimes, you know, you might wonder, all right, well, why, why is this player ranked differently in, you know, December or January compared to where he was, you know, in an August update. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of, all right, we, we just have more time to go through all of the information that we have and, and also make more calls to, to gather more information and, and just synthesize everything to try to make a, a better decision on, on where we have the players ranked. Yeah. And, and even in addition to everything you said, I think what's really helpful too is especially with the prospect handbook process this year, I thought we did a really good job of kind of balancing prospect grades and rankings um, as a, kind of a macro process rather than just looking at one player, being able to compare and contrast a certain player that we have in one range with another player who we view in a similar range and kind of asking ourselves, okay, why do we have this player with this grade or with this ranking when this other similar player who maybe we like better or worse in a certain area has this ranking. So I think the, the ability to kind of, like you said, take more time, digest more information, process more information um, in addition to that compare and contrast ability that that is tricky at times when you're shuffling hundreds of different players but i really got a lot of value i think from our our handbook process this past year just having a lot of conversations about our top 10s about our top 30s um and being able to compare and contrast players just makes it makes you feel at least a little bit more confident in where you're putting a player or the grades that you're putting on a player uh obviously in some sense, a lot of this is still trying to shoot a moving target regardless of the time of year because this this whole prospecting thing and projecting thing is just very difficult and we're always going to be wrong in some capacity. But this year it was just fun to see how everything lined up, go through the process of ranking these players, reading the reports in in various systems, kind of seeing how different systems are going up and down. Really just the whole process is fun to me. Um, and now getting to kind of see the production of that and and have people in a few months. I don't even know actually when the prospect handbook comes out. I think around March, people start getting it physically. And then if you buy it from us directly, I think you'll get a PDF. So if you guys are doing fantasy drafts uh, that are getting started in this new year or you just want that content sooner, uh, de- definitely purchase it from us directly. And I think you'll get that. Ben, you, you can give some more details on that if you know any specific dates or or if anything I said was just wrong. Yeah, I mean, definitely the fastest way to get it is if you order it directly from us at baseballamerica.com. We, we're just able to send it out faster compared to uh, Amazon. And, and it, you know, selfishly helps us more because we make uh, more revenue from direct sales as opposed to the 
uh, cut that Amazon gets when you order it from them. But, you know, obviously appreciate people getting it anywhere, but it is the the fastest uh, delivery if you order it directly from, from our site. Yeah, definitely. And I guess since we're talking prospect handbook process, let's just jump into some pro guys before we talk about amateur players. Um, we're in the process of, of updating our top 100 for the 2023 season. I actually have my prelim top 100 list uh, that I've been working on over the last week or so. Uh, it's a group of exciting players, but going back to the prospect handbook, are there any players who jump out to you as guys that are really exciting to you? Players who made big jumps um, from the 2021 season to the 2022 season, maybe players who went the opposite direction that you're worried about, or or even just players who, as we went through the process, as you wrote about players or or read the reports uh, of other staffers and different systems that maybe you aren't covering directly uh, that impressed you or, or that were notable, notable to you. There are a few that jumped to mind for me, but uh, I'll throw it to you first, Ben, if there's any players that, that you want to talk through here. One guy who it's kind of a strange answer maybe for that question, but Gunnar Henderson mm-hmm. was somebody who, I mean, look, obviously we have him as our number one prospect in baseball um at the end of the 2022 real, real, real deep cut pick you have there ben Gunner yeah. Henderson, little known prospect but, of gunner henderson but it's it's you know it's something where i think maybe you know based on where he was coming into the season which is a you know a very highly regarded prospect but at the same time behind adley rushman who you know i think is a you know franchise cornerstone type player um and then even you know coming into the year with Grayson Rodriguez in the system I think he got overshadowed and I I, you know like I said he's number one he's not underrated (laughs) by any means but just reading all of the reports uh, that we got on him throughout the the season and you know more reports from the off season. It's, it's not just a, you know, a, a good safe player who, you know, gets, you know, an advantage from being major league ready or, you know, basically ha- on the very cusp of already graduating from being a prospect. So there's not much risk with him compared to, you know, some other elite prospects like, you know, a Jackson Churio, somebody who, like that but just how how well-rounded his game is and and how many tools he has that have a chance to be plus if not better across the board um i mean i I think he's he's an extremely advanced hitter um covers covers the plate extremely well especially fastballs top of the zone um and then there's there's real impact power with there too i probably underappreciated how much power he had and and the kind of athlete he had i mean i think at um you know at at his size you think maybe he would go to uh third base and you know who knows maybe long term that's that's still um you know where where he goes but i i think uh just just an extremely well-rounded and impactful player on on both ends. And then, you know, another player who I think, uh, you know, really elevated himself throughout the the course of the year was Jackson Merrill. 
the yeah. Padres shortstop. I think that was a uh, you know proving to be a a really good pick for them. I think he's going to rank very high on our top 100. It's just a a really 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 sweet swing. He's a a very pure hitter. I just think he's one of the more uh, advanced young hitters in especially in the lower levels of the minor leagues. Yeah, those are both good ones and and really going to Gunnar Henderson and to just Baltimore in general. I mean, they've had a bunch of very hitter heavy drafts in the last few years. They've picked very high in the draft the last few years to get premium offensive prospects, but I came away very impressed with their hitting development in Baltimore. It really felt like the entirety of their top 10, all of their position player prospects have a chance to be everyday big leaguers, which is very loud praise. Even if all of them are just average everyday big leaguers, that's an incredible return for a system. And when you're talking about following a guy up like Adley Rutschman with a player like Gunnar Henderson, who not only inherits that number one spot, but also looks like a potential perennial all-star caliber player, it's really impressive. Uh, you mentioned Jackson Merrill. There's another player named Jackson that I wanted to mention, and that's Jackson Holiday. Um, we obviously had him number three on our draft board. Uh, the, the Orioles took him number one overall, obviously, at this point, and his pro debut was very strong. So that combination of a hitter with tools, um, obviously he's quite a bit further behind in his career than Gunnar Henderson is right now, but he has all the tools you want to see for another impact, potential all-star caliber player, had a great pro debut, hit the ball hard. His chase rate was really impressive. Uh, his contact rate was was one of the best of the pro debut players. And I think you could even say probably one of the best in minor league baseball. It's obviously a smaller sample and you have to factor in various um, competition levels, but I think it it wouldn't be surprising at all if of the 2022 draftees with with his debut and with Drew Jones getting injured, if if we had him as the top ranked 2022 draftee at this point, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I know I have him first on my prelim kind of personal top 100 list. We still have to have those conversations and go through the process, but. Uh, he was, he's just, he's always been very impressive. His pro debut is impressive. So I feel good about him. Another player who maybe has been more impressive than I expected and was a player who I came out of the prospect handbook process really liking is James Wood with the Nationals. Um, I think he has a chance to be a top 10 prospect in baseball as, as soon as the start of the season. I'm curious to see and to hear where other people on the staff have him, but the adjustments that he made in pro ball uh, combined with the the physical tools that he has at his disposal uh, were really impressive. I remember, I think at some point midway through the year, uh, it, it might've even been actually when we were putting in the 2022 draftees, I remember thinking adamantly that Elijah Green, I would have Elijah Green above James Wood just because of where they were at at the same time during the draft process with, with Elijah green as an underclassman, maybe being uh, even a more impressive prospect than James Wood on the same team uh, who is a year older than Elijah green at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the impact ability that Elijah green has the, the raw athleticism and speed um, just Elijah being a, a player who had some of the best accessible in-game power that I've seen Um but really looking at what James Wood has been able to do in terms of zone control, in terms of contact rate, barrel percentage, hard hit rate. I mean, his average exit velocity is going to be one of the best 
on the top 100 list, regardless of where he ranks. And to see those adjustments that he's been able to make in pro ball after honestly a disappointing high school season is really, really impressive. So I think he has as much upside as, as maybe any player in, in minor league baseball right now when you combine those. So he he's one that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I, I was very surprised, frankly, just at how well James Wood hit <laughs> last year. Um, I thought that there was going to be a lot more swing and miss to his game. I think the obvious, or the excuse me, I think the upside with him was was obvious at the time. Gigantic human being with gigantic raw power and and a good athlete, especially for that size. But like you said, I, I did not expect him to be able to control the zone and control his strikeouts the way he did after, especially like you said, I mean, he swung and missed a good amount at, at IMG Academy. Um, I wonder if you think that'll have, you know, I don't know if you think that had any impact on the way teams evaluated Elijah Green, who also has some swing and miss concerns in his game. Obviously, the draft was, you know, in July. So, you know, we had seen some good things, out, certainly from James Wood by then. But I wonder if you think that will affect the way teams will evaluate players at IMG Academy who are facing mm-hmm. you know really good competition, at least relative to um you know a lot of other players yeah. who are you know high school players in in different parts of the country yeah it, james wood is is an interesting case and, and having elijah green to compare him to is is fascinating as well because if you go back to the 2021 draft cycle james wood entering the year was seen as a top 10 prospect in the class our preseason rank for him was number seven overall um and then when i was kind of looking at the history of our first round to-do list i just wanted to check to see who who the most notable risers and fallers uh, of this this pro- this exercise have been we've done it going back to 2018 now this is going to be the sixth time we've done this exercise which seems crazy um time really flies but james wood did fall um his preseason ranking was seven and that was after a summer showcase circuit where he really impressed and, and he looked like one of the better hitters in the class i remember th- the reason people were so excited about him and so high on him at the time was because he did show that raw power, but his pure hitting ability was much better than people expected for a player with with such long levers. Um, his ability to kind of even expand the zone and hit high velocity as an amateur was impressive. And then during the spring, I just remember having conversations with scouts and hearing about how oh, James Wood, he's been disappointing. He's swinging and missing a lot more than we expected. Uh, he's really just not not hitting as well as we thought. And it's it's so tricky because for high school players, typically where you kind of set your stock is the showcase circuit. Um, and for most high school hitters, I would say their ability to leverage themselves up or down boards in their high school spring seasons is is very minimal, typically because the competition they're facing is just not good. You think about the the season that Joe Adele had his draft year. On the showcase circuit, he really struggled with swing and miss. Uh, then he played really bad competition in Louisville and around the Louisville area and hit a ton of home runs. So I think there are, there are cases where you can look at players who have succeeded or failed, failed, I should say in the summer showcase circuit and then dominate competition in the high school season. Typically the, the performance against the showcase circuit and the top pitchers in the class 
is more useful than your high school season with, with James Wood and with IMG in general, they're always playing a strong schedule. So I think you probably can take a little bit more away from that, but still, even then it's, it's just really hard to balance reacting too much versus like anchoring what you had previously and not, not changing your opinions. Cause just looking back through these, these lists, like Andrew Painter is another one entering, entering the year. Andrew Painter was viewed as the top high school pitcher in the class. Um, he didn't pitch as well as he did throughout the summer and the spring, especially early on. And then Jackson Job overtook him. And in our draft rankings, we had Jackson Job, I think number three or four overall. Actually, I have it. I have it over here. I'll give you the exact numbers. Uh, Jackson Job entered the preseason number 30 and he finished number eight. Um, Andrew Painter entered at number 10 and he finished number 15. I think in hindsight, we would have Andrew Painter first among prep pitchers in that class, just considering what he's done in pro ball. Obviously that's easier to say now, but I, I think just the point I'm kind of getting at maybe in a very long and rambling way is it, it's very tricky to balance weighing new information and, and trying to figure out which one we're weighing more. Um, but, but I'll just finish by saying James Wood certainly showed at times in high school that he could be a very good hitter. And I wonder if for whatever reason, the pressure just got to him during the spring or he just slumped in a, a small period of time, or if he's made significant adjustments and is now just a simply a better player than he used to be. It's, it's tricky to kind of find out what the real answer is. Yeah. I think one, one other player, like you said, going through this prospect handbook in terms of players, you grew to appreciate more. Another one for me would be Miguel blaze with the Red Sox um, international signing for them, big international signing out of the Dominican Republic before the 2021 season. So it's not like he's a sleeper who, who came out of nowhere, but um, it sounds like the, he always had a lot of bad speed, but it sounds like the power has really come on for him. Um, it sounds like he's, you know, the exit velocities are, very high and there's still a lot of strength projection left for him to get even stronger and and the athleticism has always stood out for him uh he kind of glides around in in center field he's got plus speed so you have a uh, a power speed threat who's 18 years old or coming into his age what age 19 season this year had a really good season in the complex league in Florida last year. Strikeouts were a little high. It's going to still have to tighten his strike zone discipline some, but I don't think he's a free swinger by any means either. Um, he, he's somebody where I didn't think coming into this process that he would be a top 100 prospect and he, he still might not be coming into the year. But I also think he's a pretty good case <laughs> that he is a top 100 guy right now. And I think just if you're looking at, you know, especially international players at the lower levels who have a chance to break out and not necessarily to the level that we saw Jackson Churio last year, because what he did was extremely special. And and frankly, they're the same age for <laughs> they're from the same Sign class and, and Churio has already reached double A, so he's a, a different category all to himself. But I think if you're looking for a lower level 
international player who could break out and pretty quickly be a top 50 potential top 25 overall prospect in baseball within a few months he he would be my pick for that he's just a, he's a really exciting combination of power and speed uh, with some performance already to to back it up at a premium position yeah that's a good one i've got another name who who you kind of made me think about when you're talking about a player like blaze who who might be on the back end might just miss the top 100 entering the year but is a good maybe pop up or a riser candidate and, and mine is spencer jones and and this is another one who it it's basically just the how impressive the pro debut was spencer jones was a back of the first second round talent for for most scouts that i talked to going into the 2022 draft uh, and, and he was seen as a very high risk high reward prospect just because of the swing and miss that he had shown at times because of those long levers i guess a, a similar player you could say to a guy like jordan walker just a big physical left-handed hitting slugger oh, like james pro- wood who did i say you said jordan walker I was saying, oh like, yeah james, james wood, wood. james wood sorry too. sorry yeah. james wood is the is the name i meant to say there um but i think they have some similarities just in that regard. And the Yankees obviously were tied to him pretty heavily throughout. They got him in the back of the first round. And then he went out and and made a lot more contact than I would have expected of a guy like Spencer Jones facing pro ball for the first time. I mean, it wasn't the highest level competition, but the chase rate was good. It was around 26%. The overall miss rate was good. His barrel percentage, the exit velocities were strong as you'd expect for someone like him. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how he's able to fill up the holes that he's shown in the past in his zone and, and how good of a pure hitter he really is. I think there's still a chance that maybe he's more of a fringy hitter, but if he's only a fringy hitter, 45 hitter, someone who's hitting 240, 250, something like that, with the power that he has, he's still going to be a very good player. And, and just seeing how his pure hitting ability develops as he progresses up the minor league ladder will be fascinating to me. He is one guy who I would say I would put an up arrow on after just a brief pro debut of the 2022 draftees. Another player that I'm excited about just in general is Emmanuel Rodriguez with the Twins. I didn't do the Twins list this year, um, but last year I remember he was one of the most fascinating players at the lower levels of the system. And it sounds like in 2022, he just did everything you would want to see in terms of making adjustments at the plate. Um, he has pretty phenomenal power. Uh, I think we put 60 power on him moving forward. The exit velocity numbers are strong with him, but really it's the batting eye that that stands out to me for a player who's was in his age 20 season uh, in low A. I think he almost got on base at like a 50% rate, which is just insane overall regardless in, in pro ball. Um, and his ability to make breaking balls and just hitting spin, turn that from a weakness into a strength this year. I, I just love a lot of of what JJ wrote and what we got from from scouts and the reports we were getting on on his adjustability at the plate, the uh the way he's able to adapt and kind of improve his game. I think seeing that from a young player with his physical tools uh is, is really exciting for me. And he would be a guy that I'm pretty bullish on coming into the year in general. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he shot up into like top 25 range um, very quickly, if he starts off strong uh, at the higher levels. 
yeah, the the power, the on base skills that he have, it's gonna come with some strikeouts, but I think again to a pretty manageable level. And then the the plate discipline that he has is is so good. Uh, it's it's definitely a um, like you know, like you said, it, more walks than strikeouts last year. It's low A, so it's not not great pitching that he's that he's facing. But I think the the strike zone discipline is is really advanced mm-hmm. for his age, um, and then it's you know power to back it up. So I think it's it, it's a corner outfield profile, and I think he's defensively uh, going to be limited there i know he's played some you know you know or playing center field but i think long term it's more corner outfield with him but the combination of on base skills and and power that he has i mean it, he looks like somebody could hit in the middle of their middle of their lineup yeah yeah another player i want to mention really quickly ben is a, a player we were both really big fans of in the 2022 draft class and that's cam collier I mean, we have to be thrilled with his debut, right? I know it's just nine games, but he showed everything that I would have wanted to see from a guy like him in his debut. Hit 370, 514, 630. It was rookie ball, but he's also a 17-year-old in rookie ball. Um, Again, you don't want to get too crazy over a small sample, but I think the underlying hitting metrics also are really exciting. The exit velocity was above 90 miles per hour on average. Uh, His barrel rate was really good. The chase rate was solid and just the contact rate overall, I think was, was pretty solid for a 17 year old as well. So um, we both loved him coming out of the draft, just what we saw him do against advanced competition. And then I think also having not seen him in the Cape when maybe he was the worst he's been in the last three years or so um, just having not seen that in person. And that really didn't impact my, my, my thoughts on him too much. I was really excited to, uh, to see just that debut from him, because I, I really do think Collier with his pure hitting ability, how handsy and loose and natural the swing is um, the strength that he has and just the age. I can't wait to see what kind of path the Reds put him on. Are they going to be cautious with him? Is he just going to dominate and and force their hand and move up? I, I would love to see how quickly a guy like Cam can, can make the big leagues because he's just so advanced for a 17 year old. Yeah. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite picks in the draft last year, maybe my favorite just based on where the Reds were able to draft him. I don't think when you're picking in the middle of the first round, uh, you're expecting Cam Collier to mm-hmm. be available. To, I don't know, though. Now, I mean, we, we've seen it happen so often. The Reds had money. Like, there's always someone who slips, but I guess maybe I, I never would have expected him to, but I just need to try and force myself to think that something we don't think is going to happen is going to happen every year in the draft. It just constantly does. Khalil Watson, Brady Singer, Matthew Liberator, like it just happens. And and teams with that money are able to get those guys to, to fall to them. And I mean, a 5 million bonus, I think it was the 10th best or the 10th largest in the first round. But yeah, good on the Reds for getting him because I'm super high on him. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's surprises every year. So the takeaway from that should be that you should always expect surprises every year, right? Um, so th- so that's that's part of it. But like you said, he he, he was a reclassification from 2023 high school class. So we should be talking about him. Yeah, and we should be talking about comparing him, and him Walker to like Jenkins and Max, Max Clark. Yeah, <laughs> comparing him to to those guys for you know the discussion of who should be the number one high school player in the country 
this year and and Collier went out and had a really good junior college season as a 17 year old. Uh, and like you said, a, a good, albeit brief pro debut. Uh, I think he's, I mean, the, the upside is there is somebody who could be a top 25 prospect, maybe top 10, even top five overall prospects in baseball. That's, that's how much I, I love Cam, Cam Collier's bad. It's, like you said, it's a it's a really loose, free and easy, low effort swing. The ball flies off his bat with with power for such a, a low effort type swing, and and he has power, but he's really a, a hit first guy. That's that's his approach. That's his mentality at the plate. And I think just as he, you know, continues to get stronger and just evolve as a hitter and, and learn which pitches to try to turn on and try to drive for damage in 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 hitters counts and and pitches that he can pull with authority you're going to see the power numbers jump even more uh yeah with him i think that's why i was most excited about just the hard hit rate and exit velocity numbers that he showed this year is because to your point he, he is a pure hitter first i think people who were most skeptical of him wondered how much power he would get to because it's really not a swing designed for power like it, it doesn't ever look like he's trying to hit for power it's not like an elijah green or a walker jenkins to use a 2023 prospect who like it's clearly a leverage swing optimized or, or attempting to be optimized for power. Uh, and I also thought he got the ball in the air at a good rate is again, I don't want to like hammer home nine game samples of stats and, and, and think that this is the player he is. Uh, but I was just impressed with the frequency with which he drove the ball with authority in the air during his pro debut. So that's encouraging. I'm now wanting to go back to my top 100 list that I have, my personal top 100 list, and move him up the board now after this conversation. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious which one of us will have him higher because I would hope either you or me are our highest of him, of the BA staff, Ben. Do you know where you're going to have him on your your own personal list, not necessarily where he's going to end up on, on the official BA top 100 list? Or have you got that far yet? My plan is to look where you have him on your list, and I'm going to put him one spot above <sighs> okay. that. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm not going to tell you where I'm putting Dylan Lesko because I, I I just have to be highest on Dylan Lesko. I think that's the guy that that I'm personally going to be definitely the highest on. And and his is his is going out on a limb because it's not like Lesko had a good pro debut like Collier. It's just straight going off pre-draft information, pre-Tommy John surgery, how good he was. But yeah, I got to boost yeah. him now. Another guy I, I really appreciated more too, and again, not a sleeper by any means, although he was at one point going into his draft year was Evan Carter, the Rangers outfielder. Yeah, not I don't even think I think you could go even further than sleeper. I, I I'll pull up right now where we had him on our draft board, but yeah, he was he was a shocker pick at the time, um, for sure. Yeah, second and second round pick in 2020 out of high school in that COVID year. So very, very unusual draft class. Who knows what would have happened had the high school season played out that year. But yeah, we we didn't um, have him ranked on the 500, and this was also the year Nick York was the surprise pick too. So definitely a weird year, but good on the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, a ton of credit to the Rangers. You know, new you know kind of going into the handbook process. Like this is a an extremely polished hitter controls the strike zone extremely well uh, especially for you know a 19 year old who was in high a and, and got to 
got to double A by the end of the season. Uh, really, really good swing, pure hitter, uh, good frame to uh, project that you, you hope more power is coming. We, we've started to seen it tick up a little bit. I know there's kind of a split camp among scouts about how much power he's ultimately going to have. But then, you know, hearing the defensive reviews on him were, were really encouraging. Um, I mean, we're, you know, he's six foot four. You think a big guy like that is going to fill out and, and probably be more of a corner guy. But I mean, he's a plus runner with really good ball skills in center field. It sounds like he moves really well to to all angles. Um, you know, steals a lot of bases too. I think the speed plays plays there as well. Uh, that will help even more with the the new rules at, at the major league level coming. So um, if he's able to stay in, in center field, especially uh, puts even less demands on his power developing, but I, I think there's a chance that even, you know, he could retain his speed and grow into some, you know, really significantly more power than he's showing right now to go with you know the 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 components to be a really high on base threat as well so a a really well-rounded player with probably a better chance to uh you know stay at a premium position that i realized coming into the the process yeah the defense definitely jumped out to me as well i think like you mentioned just the the on-base skills the contact rate the chase rate are really strong for him i am curious to see what sort of physicality he he develops into. We have him listed at six foot four, 190 pounds. Um, I think another player we have listed at that is Braden Shoemake. And he's been a guy who just hasn't been able to add weight. I don't know if how like Evan Carter's physicality has tracked over the last few years. Um, but the impact is certainly a question. It, it, it feels like safe to say that Carter is on track to be a very solid everyday player right now. And like how much impact he gets to or how good, the pure hit tool is actually will determine his upside. Um, and the power is one, one question that I'm excited to see if he's able to answer or how that develops going into this year. But I have Carter kind of in a cluster of outfielders that was a bit tough to separate. I would say kind of in the 25 to 50 range, 20 to 50 range on my list, other outfielders around him include drew Jones Sal Frelick, who you know very well uh, from Boston College and, and doing the Brewers system, Colton Kowser, uh, Emmanuel Rodriguez, who we both just talked about, and then Pete Crow Armstrong. I think you could even include Elijah Green in that as well, or at least I would, and, and Robert Hassel with the Nationals. Um, of those outfielders, Ben, do you have like a clear number one of that group? I'll, I'll go through them again, and you can kind of think over who you would, you would take at the top, but it's Drew Jones. Um, with the D-backs, Evan Carter with the Rangers, Sal Frelick with the Brewers, Colton Kalser with the Orioles, Manuel Rodriguez with the Twins, Pico Armstrong with the Cubs, uh, and then Elijah Green and Robert Hassel with the Nationals. Do you have like a favorite that jumps out to you of that group? Um, or what do you think about that group overall? Because I think it's a very solid one kind of into the getting outside the elite tier of our list that all these players I could see making really big jumps. I think Colton Kowser jumps out to me as the aberration of that group where I would have him 
lower down the list for me. I, I like, I really like Carter. And then the other guy I really like is from that group is P. Crow Armstrong. I, I've been a, a, a huge believer in, in PCA since watching him in, in high school when, I mean, everybody obviously raves about his defense. He might be the best defensive outfielder in the minor leagues right now. I mean, conservatively, like, I don't, I don't know how you could call him anything less than a, uh, or project him to be anything less than a plus plus defender in center field. It's speed range, first step, quick quickness, precise routes, um, closing speed, diving catches, tremendous instincts in center field, just about everything you could ask for in a defensive center fielder. And I mean, the first thing that I, I actually always liked about him was his hitting ability. Um, I think he has good back control ability to use the whole field. He's not going to have the power of, you know, maybe say, uh, you, you know, know, Drew Jones or, the- or, or Emmanuel Rodriguez, but um, I mean, I, I see him as like a top of the order type hitter who can play elite defense in center field. The power that he showed in 2022 was more than I expected, to be honest. He had 16 home runs uh, overall, nine with South Bend, seven with Myrtle Beach. Um, and I think the exit velocity numbers were around 87 mile per hour average or maybe 87, 88, somewhere in that range, which was more than I expected. I, I don't ever remember Pete Crow hitting for a ton of juice in high school. And and that number just was a little more impressive than I expected. In addition to all of the defensive plaudits that you just gave him that I would echo strongly. I think it would be Pete Crow Armstrong and Drew Jones are the two most impressive defensive outfielders I've ever seen. So having them in, in a similar conversation here, I think is exciting in general and a fun one to have, but what kind of power do you think he's going to be able to get? I mean, I guess, were you as surprised with his power output this year as I was? Because that that was more than I expected um, going into it, I would say, into the process. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like he you know, was banging 25, 30 home runs or anything like that this year. Uh, and I, although, I mean, I don't know. I never thought of him as like a, a little slap hitter either. I, I always just saw him as a, a good hitter who was adept at – um, going with where the ball is pitched, you know, if it's outer third, go with the ball, you know, breaking the ball the opposite way, uh, pull the ball when he needs to. And then the the type of guy who has really good hand-eye coordination. And as he gets stronger, as he fills out, will will start to show more power. But, um, you know, I, I always thought of him as a likely hit over power type guy, but somebody who, you know, I think could get to, average power and then the the contact frequency could allow the power to play up in games you know in his in his peak years and you know maybe have some you know aberrational 25 plus home run type seasons but really more of a a hit over power guy i think yeah i think that's fair um okay ben let's do a um a spontaneous start one Sit one, trade one. Is that what we do? I've even forgotten what our uh, our our top three game is. What what's the what's the order we go in? Cut. Start one, split. cut one, trade one. I think so. Okay, so 
let's just rank these three players one two three because <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated to see uh, what other BA staffers at what order they're going to have these three players in as we get into our top 100 meetings. I like painstakingly went back and forth with a couple of these guys trying to just solidify my personal list. And I still think you could make a case for any order. So I feel like these three players are great, um, are great three to do this process with, but let me just do them in alphabetical order by their first name. Uh, Andrew Painter, right-hander with the Phillies, Yuri Perez, right-hander with the Marlins and Grayson Rodriguez, right-hander with the Orioles. I think pretty safely all three of these guys are at the top of of all pitching prospects in baseball at this point. Um and maybe listeners have a very strong feeling of who's number 1 and and maybe even for a 1 2 3, but this cluster of players I feel like is is maybe the tightest of any position grouping uh on the top 100 list. I can tell you how I have them now. Um, and then I'll let you say what your preferred order is. But I go Andrew Painter one. Uh, I go Yuri Perez two, and then I go Grayson Rodriguez three. And and that order was shocking to me because going into the process, I think I just assumed I would have Grayson one because of what he did at a higher level and because of his proximity. But I but I also don't think after after kind of thinking through it more, reading the reports. Uh, looking at what they've done, I really don't think any of these players are too far off from the big leagues. I think all three could could be in the big leagues in 2023. So how would you order those players? I think, yeah, I think all three of them have a chance to be number one starters. Now, one of them will probably significantly under uh, – not underperform, but we'll, probably even uh, multiple of them will will not live up to those expectations. Yeah, so that's that's just going to happen. But I think they all have the upside to be a number one starter. I, I would have Grayson Rodriguez first on my list. I think just his his stuff is probably a like a tick better. Like his his curveball uh, is a tick better breaking ball compared to. Painter or Perez uh, control is is just as good, if if not maybe a touch better than than the other two, uh, and and the, and the changeup too. I'd give him a changeup advantage over Andrew Painter, and then Painter versus Yuri. Ah, man, that's a tough one. I, I keep going back and forth. I'd probably give a slight nod right now to. Andrew Painter, but I, I can't say I feel strongly convicted on on one over the other. Yeah, that that's fascinating. I, I do think they're all super close. I agree with you on Grayson's control, maybe being a tick better than this group, but I also think we're talking about three guys with with plus or better control, some of the better strike throwers in baseball. Obviously, all of them have elite stuff as well, and that's why we're talking about them as as the three best pitching prospects in baseball because of that combination of command and stuff. But I think for me, it was just the the lack of injury history with Andrew Painter and confidence in the slider. I, I really think that that Andrew Painter's slider has a chance to be as good as any of the other breaking balls that we have here. I will grant you that that the changeup probably isn't as good as as Grayson or as Yuri's, but I think we're talking about 
equivalent fastballs, um, in my mind, equivalent breaking balls. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight you if you thought Grayson's was significantly better and then equivalent command. And, and after that, it's basically just health kind of being the tiebreaker, or I, I should say, I think health and in my conviction and in, in painter's slider, um, is why I have a, them in that order. And then two and three, I, I could easily flip Yuri and Grayson, um, two and three. Um, but I, I just, man, I just feel like Yuri is such an outlier athlete and I love everything about what he does. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my rationale, but again, I think you could put these guys, you could jumble them up in a hat and whatever order comes out would, would make a lot of sense. That'd be a big hat to fit Yuri Perez and Andrew <laughs> Painter. In. All these guys are big, man. The, I think more, cause it's, it's probably pretty obvious that those are going to be the top three pitching prospects in baseball, but who would you have after them as the best pitching prospect in baseball? I would, don't say Dylan, don't say Dylan Lesko. I would I have Dylan Lesko. Actually, I have <laughs> Dylan Lesko as the number one, number one prospect in baseball over Gunnar Henderson, just narrowly. Um, no, I would have, I would have uh, Daniel Espino for, and I think you can make a case for some college products um, who are around the same range if you wanted to. But I think if Daniel Espino was healthy, we'd be talking about him the exact same way that we're talking about Painter and Yuri right now. Um, I mean, his fastball is one of the best in minor league baseball. I think his breaking ball, I, I think, is equivalent or better than any of the breaking balls we're talking about with this now, I guess, um, foursome of players. I think really the the question I would have with Espino is how good are the strikes really? All these other guys, I feel very confident in their command and their control overall. Espino showed really good control in his briefer innings in 2022, um, but he doesn't have a history of being like a pinpoint um, command guy. I think the 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 Guardians have done a really good job with him, and I and I would trust the Guardians with pitching development generally. Um, but I think for me, just the upside potential is too exciting for me to take anyone other than Daniel Espino. Um, I, I probably err on the side of sticking with the high school right-handers um, more than maybe some others on the staff, but the combination of his stuff, um, the physicality, his lower half usage, uh, his work ethic off the field, and Cleveland's just factory of, of developing arms and getting the most out of pitchers, I, I like all of those things, and I would I would still bet on him despite the injury. How yeah, about you? you got yeah, I mean, you've got what you got Bobby Miller with the Dodgers, Hunter Brown with the Astros. I mean, another one with the Guardians, Gavin, Gavin Williams, Williams. Yep. Who's, I mean, all, all three teams just are done a phenomenal job developing pitchers. I, I actually agree how, with that. I didn't know you. How far do you think Shane Boz would be outside of that? Do you think he'd be the next guy in that, that conversation? Because, I mean, he previously was right in this conversation. Maybe he's fallen off, but I don't, I'm, I'm curious to see how far people have him down boards. He he would be he would be much farther down the list. Okay, for me, and, I, and is... I know, I I know Shane Boz. Look, coming into the year, loved Shane Boz, but I mean, just the he's, he's got to be able to stay healthy, and that's just become a a bigger and bigger red flag for him. Um, you know, we're talking about he's he's going to miss all of. 2023 right i mean that's <laughs> that's a tough one tough one to bet on i'm I'm not writing him off but he'd be he, he would be much 
farther down my gotcha. top 100 compared to um, probably compared to the, the rest of the BA staff. But um, yeah, I mean, when I asked, I didn't know who you were going to take after that top trio of Yuri yeah. and Painter and, and Grayson. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Daniel Espino. It's, Let's go. It's, we it's love Georgia right-handers, yeah. Espino and Dylan Lesko. <laughs> Let's get on the Ethan Hankins bandwagon. Who else? Kamar Rocker. Yeah, we all of them. We're taking all the Georgia right-handers. He, you know, he got hurt last year, but before he got hurt, he was he was dominating in in Double A. Like you said, he's got one of. I mean, he, he might have the best fastball in the minor leagues. I mean, he's sitting mid. Mid upper nineties, touching triple digits. He has uh, a wipeout slider that he can throw with with power and really good action on it too. I, I think there's some feel for uh, for a changeup there too. And and in his case, we're not talking about an elbow or or a shoulder surgery. It was it was a knee injury. Uh, that he couldn't come back from and it's you know that's not nothing it's it's something to to watch and and i'm sure it'll limit his his workload and how many innings he's going to be able to throw next year so um you know i i really like you know bobby miller and and gavin williams too and, and obviously hunter brown has just filthy stuff but if i had to bet on one of those guys developing into a front end starter, uh, my my pick would be a Spino. Are you at all concerned that he just hasn't surpassed the 100 innings uh, threshold yet? Is that, I mean, it's tied to the health. Obviously, that's the reason he didn't throw 100 innings this past year. But how concerning should that be? I think we're talking about a, a very high variance profile in general here. Um, but with those other guys, I think you could probably feel a little bit more comfortable with them, even if maybe the upside isn't as high as, as we would think with Espino. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it, it comes with more risk than some of those other players. But at the same time, look, he was drafted in 2019, and then there was no minor league season in 2020. 2021, he went out, he made 20 starts. Like the Indians, or, or were they the Indians at that time? So I could, I could say the, the Indians... Uh, or the Guardians limited. They were the, or what? What, what point in time when they drafted them? They in, were the Indians, right? Well, in 2021, they yeah, yeah they didn't. They, let they would have been the Indians out. still. So they, you know, they they didn't let him throw more than 100 innings during the regular season of that year. But he did go out and make 20 starts and struck out about 700 guys in <laughs> in that time span. So um, it's you, you do want to see a, a pitcher be able to handle uh you know a full season workload above that, that level but at the same time there's some contextual things obviously being the big one being the, just the missed 2020 season of um you know haven't allowed him to be able to to do that yet in addition to the, the knee injury last year we've talked about a lot of individual players i wanted to ask you about best organizations in baseball as well um, who do you think has the the best organization in baseball in, in terms of farm system at this point? Um, or are there any other dark horse orgs that you really like that think maybe can make a jump uh, in the next year or so? And I guess also, in addition to that question, do you think uh, we, we've already 
gone through this process, obviously of, of ranking our top orgs in the prospect handbook process, but I guess just, just talk a little bit about how much separation there was in, in the top system, Ben, and, and where do you view just kind of the talent landscape in, among the big league clubs? I, I think the Orioles have to be the number one farm system in baseball right now, which is extremely impressive given that they just graduated Adley Rushman. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have two guys who, I mean, they have Gunnar Henderson, who I think is the best prospect in baseball. Grayson Rodriguez, who I just said is the best pitching prospect in baseball. So mm -hmm. another, another that, year with Baltimore having the best hitting prospect and the best pitching prospect in baseball. Cause I think for, for at least half of last or half of 2022, that was the case for them as well. So congrats, yeah, and, Baltimore. And, and when you have those two elite players at the top of your system, that carries so much more value than just depth. But it's it's not even just those two guys, right? Like you mentioned, Jackson Holiday, first overall pick in the draft, had a great pro debut. Um, you know, Hauser, Jordan Westberg, Connor Norby, uh, DL Hall, who I'm not quite as optimistic about because I think he probably ends up in the bullpen, but you, you can't just wow. deny the, the, raw I think he could quality. still wind up being like a, a lockdown reliever. Cause especially after, I think JJ had looked up where the closers come from, where the best closers in baseball come from and what their walk rates were in the minor leagues. And in a surprising number of elite closers did not have the best control in the minors. I know we've talked about this for with deal hall since like 2017 when he was drafted, but man, the stuff is just so filthy. He only has to get moderately better in terms of the consistency of his control for him to just be a nightmare out of a bullpen. Um, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. I could, I could see that. So mm -hmm. I, I see them having, you know, two guys who I would say conservatively are, are probably top 10 prospects in baseball. Have yeah. a chance to be top five between Gunnar Henderson and uh and Grayson Rodriguez and they have about seven or eight players who could be top 100 prospects too so um pretty impressive and then and then you have to consider too how they were just a total zero in Latin America for mm -hmm. so many years and that the you know really the the from the time they started to turn around their international program the the best players that they've signed there are still you know guys who are in in rookie ball uh you know aside from like uh you know prieto cuban players a little bit older a little bit more advanced but um really otherwise the the upper levels <laughs> of the system just are devoid of latin american signings for them yeah, and then one other thing that I, I think everything you said is is right. I would agree the Orioles are are pretty clearly the top farm system in baseball at this point. They're just the quantity and quality of the position players they have on top of those top ten prospects is is fantastic. And and like I had said earlier, I just came away really impressed with their hitting development, what they were able to do to get the most out of their hitters. Um, whatever they're preaching in Baltimore and, and the coaching staff seems to be doing an excellent job. And, and that makes me even more optimistic about players like Dylan Beavers and Judd Fabian and Carter Young players who have real hit tool questions um, coming out of the draft in 2022, but otherwise are 
are very talented with tools. Carter Young is a, a, a really good defensive shortstop. Judd Fabian has plus raw power. He's a, a great defensive center fielder um, and, and just never made as much contact as people wanted to see in college. Like seeing what they've been able to do with Gunner, with Connor Norby, with Colton Kowser, um, who, who granted maybe they had different hitting profiles coming out of the draft, but but I don't think anyone expected Gunnar Henderson um, to be the player that he is now when he was selected in, when was it, 2019? Uh, yeah, second round pick in 2019. I don't think anyone mm-hmm. would have expected him to be the player that he is now, much more similar to Bobby Witt Jr. currently than you would have had them 2019 as high school players. Like They weren't even in the same conversation, and now you could certainly make a case that they are. Um, so I, I'm just very confident in their their hitting development at this point after seeing what they've been able to do with some of these players. And I'm excited to see what they're able to do with the the Judd Fabians and the Carter Youngs of the world. Yeah, and the, the other team that's been on the opposite end of uh, not picking high in the draft every year, the way that the Orioles have it that sticks out to me is, is the Dodgers. I mean, I'm not saying anything particularly revelatory, here, but it's it's just incredible how how well stocked they're able to keep their farm system for a team that's consistently picking in the second half and usually the second third of of the first round. Um, it's you know guys you know still in the draft like uh, Bobby Miller, Michael Bush, Ryan Pepio, uh, Gavin Stone. Even their first pick this year, Dalton Rushing, was already looked phenomenal in pro ball, and it, it wouldn't be surprising at all if he he quickly jumps on the hundred. Yeah, I mean, a great yeah, great pro debut for him in their Latin American program. I mean, Diego Cartaya, Miguel Vargas, both are going to be top fifty prospects and probably pretty high up that top fifty. So it's 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 really impressive what they're able to do, and then you know not not just picking at the back of the first rounds every year, but they're also trading away a lot of players too. So um, some of which, you know, I'm sure they would uh, like to undo the Jordan Alvarez trade. And, you know, they, they signed O'Neill Cruz too and traded him away. And, you know, they trade, you know, Kiber Ruiz, another, you know, good player. They, they trade away. So, you know, even with those trades, there's just so much homegrown, talent that they're able to produce year after year despite not you know having the advantages that other teams do picking so high in the draft every year it's it's just remarkable what a what a machine the Dodgers are yeah I think they're going to continue a streak of being a top 10 farm system for the last five or six years this year while also being one of the best big league teams in baseball I think just that thumbnail statement alone is is a pretty good reason for them being just one of the best organizations overall in baseball. Um, I definitely push for them for our, our org of the year team because of that. Just the ability to have that sustained sustained success in the big leagues while the talent pipeline just never stops. While to your point, you're never picking, you're never getting the elite tier prospects in the draft because you're picking 25 to 30 and in the last few years, you're not even picking in the first round because the luxury tax is dropping uh, your first round draft pick, which this year I was really excited to see the damage the Dodgers would do uh, because the draft lottery actually helped a team like them who got eliminated early in the playoffs uh, because the new playoff ordering system 
uh, benefits teams, or you get a, a, a an earlier draft pick if you are eliminated sooner in the playoffs. So a team like the Dodgers, who typically has just a phenomenal regular season record, is never picking high. I wanted to see them picking in the early 20s to see what they would do. Uh, but that's not going to happen. The luxury tax exists, and the Dodgers spend a lot of money, and they get penalized for making their team very good. Uh, are there any other teams you wanted to mention, Ben, or can we pivot to some 2023 and 2024 draft talk? Yeah, what do you got on the on the 2023 class? I, I feel like I like it better than the industry and other people at this point. I, I'm personally very high on it. I remember texting with some people over the the winter break just about this class in general, and and I think I even said this is the most excited I've been about a draft class since I've started at BA. So that would be, I guess you can include 2017 when Hudson Belinsky was running our draft coverage instead of uh, getting the the number one player on the board in 2022 for the D-backs as a scout. But that would include 2017 to 2022 in this year's class. I am as excited as I've ever been. And I think it's probably because we have one of the best college pitching prospects I, I think pretty pretty easily the best college pitching prospect in that period in Chase Dullander and a guy like Dylan Cruz, who I was always high on in high school and who has just been one of the best players in college baseball uh, at LSU. And then the entirety of the first round is super college heavy and hitter heavy with a lot of up the middle profiles. Like it's like everything that you would want in a draft class. I think the only area that maybe scouts in the industry would, would prefer is if you could combine the 2021 shortstops. Uh, I think that was the Lawler year, right? I'm not going crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lawler and Meyer were 2021. Yeah. If you could have that sort of high school shortstop impact, I think people would be even higher on this class. The top two high school players are, are both outfielders, which it's still good, but I, I definitely get the sense that, especially at the very top, scouting directors and scouting departments in general just love tooled up high school infielders, but or high school shortstops, I should say. But I really like this class. I think in terms of depth, you have the benefit of the 2020 shortened draft pushing a lot more high school players into college than you typically would. So the depth overall is stronger, and I think – that maybe is is a reason why Dylan, a guy like Dylan Cruz even made it to school in the first place. Um, he he probably was low enough on draft boards at that time that maybe even a normal year with with a high price tag and a strong LSU commitment, maybe he still goes to school um, because he entered the draft cycle as as like a top of the first round talent and at the time of the draft was more of like a top fifty talent. But just all of those factors, the number of hitters. Hopefully, we we have our college pitchers stay healthier this year. Because there are even some exciting guys beyond Chase Dolander, but I'm really excited for this draft class. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Ben? I know you've got maybe more experience seeing these high school players, but um, am I am I crazy to be this excited about it? I just I just love the demographics that we have this year at the top. Yeah, I think there's a good depth of of high school players too, so I, I do think it's a a, a particularly uh strong class despite not having i don't know if, if you disagree with me there is there an obvious number one player this year or is it more of a more of an open open race still for for if, number one it feels like 
there's a top tier. And I think Dylan Cruz and Chase Dolander are in that top tier. And I think most in the industry would have Cruz as the number one player. Um, just because they were able to see him during the summer. Chase Dolander wasn't seen during the summer. He pitched with Tennessee, then shut things down and really has just one dominant season. Um, so I think the teams are kind of just putting Cruz as the de facto 1-1 because of his combination of hitting ability, impact, power, uh, pedigree going back to high school, just raw tools, physicality, and the production that he's he's shown in college while moving from right field to center field from his freshman to sophomore years. I think that overall combination um, just makes people feel like he's the safe one, one. I don't think it's a, a case like 2019 where Adley Rutschman is just the clear one, one. I, I don't think it's that sort of separation, but it does feel like there's a top tier of Cruz and Dollander at this point. And then you have a bunch of players who are kind of in that second tier, maybe one B tier. And I would include Mississippi shortstop Jacob Gonzalez, Florida outfielder Wyatt Langford, um, the high school outfielders Max Clark and Walker Jenkins, uh, and then maybe even uh, a Jacob Wilson shortstop from Grand Canyon. Uh, I think that's probably your your top grouping. Um, but it, it wouldn't shock me at all if Dolander pitched exactly as we as he pitched a year ago, and three months from now he was sitting in that one one position because. I mean, teams just haven't had this sort of college pitcher um, to to watch in, in years. I mean, I think I've written this before, but I think he's pretty safely the best college pitching prospect since A.J. Puck out of Florida in 2017, I believe, uh, maybe 2016. Um, and then there are people who have said he's, he's the best college pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg, which I think you're probably doing a little bit of disservice to some of the guys who haven't panned out but we're highly regarded at, at the same time this year. But Chase Dolander certainly has ace potential and upside. Yeah, I was going to say, how would you compare Dolander to some of the other premier college baseball pitchers we've seen go at the top of the draft in recent years, whether it's Casey Mize or mm-hmm. uh, Carlos Rodon or, or going back to... Yeah, see, Rodon yeah. is another one who I, I wasn't here at the time, but it, it really feels like you could compare Rodon to Dolander pretty, pretty comfortably. Like Rodon was filthy. I mean, Casey Mize, I have more familiarity just because I was covering him at the time, but I know one of the question marks that people had about Casey Mize is he just didn't have a traditional pitch mix. The splitter being one of his most effective pitches was a concern to some people, the long arm action, the plunging arm action, and some of his injury history was a bit of a question as well. I think with Dolander, you're, you're really looking at a, how you would draw up a pitching prospect, I guess I would say. I said this a lot for Dylan Lesko out of high school, and I think Chase Dollander checks a lot of these boxes as well as a college pitching prospect, but he's got fantastic command of a fastball that sits in the mid-90s with great carry. Um, he spots that pitch at a really high rate, rate just in terms of strikes overall and changing eye levels going back and forth uh, to both sides of the plate. He's got um, a, a plus slider that might be a plus-plus pitch as well. He has feel for a changeup. He's got a buttery smooth delivery, no violence, no real glaring mechanical red flags or concerns. I just think that he's a super well-rounded pitcher who has a combination of command, size, and stuff on top of the performance that he showed last year with Tennessee that you really don't have any glaring question marks with him at this point. 
Yeah, he yeah, he seems to me. I mean, I remember seeing Rodon in college and he was he was dominant. Um, you know, electric fastball and, and slider combination, especially, but uh it just seems like Dollinger's just the the raw stuff and then the performance. It like you said, he checks so many boxes that you would look for in in a college pitcher when you're looking at the potential one one or, or certainly top you know two or three overall type of pick in the draft it just seems like he has so many attributes in place to be able to develop into a a front end starter and and probably get there pretty quickly i mean i imagine if mm-hmm. he was you know if somebody had drafted him out of high school he'd, he'd probably be starting the year and in what in, in double a this year uh, if not if not higher than that i i've heard from some scouts who liked him out of high school and were trying to push i think multiple scouts have told me that they were they liked him out of high school and were trying to push to get him signed on like day three i, I can't imagine being in that position and then seeing him now like those guys have to feel number one like very um like that feel like they were exactly right and also bummed that they missed out on potentially getting a guy like this at, at a significantly cheaper cost uh i don't know how signable he was at that point but he certainly was not uh talked about even close to the way he's talked about now as a prospect uh, and i remember talking prior to the 2022 draft uh, with with coach tony vitello tennessee's head coach i was just asking about because because they had one of the best pitching staffs in the country i wasn't really focused on dolander at that point because we were we were still a class away but i remember just asking him who's the best pure pitcher on your team you have so many just flamethrowers and guys who who have phenomenal stuff and he was like He's like Chase Dolander is, is one of the better strike throwers and command guys I've ever seen. And in knowing how good the pure stuff was, but I think maybe not at that point realizing how pure of a pitcher he was really raised my eyebrows and, and maybe kind of do a double take and, and go check back into his numbers and, and how he does everything. It's uh, it's really, really smooth and really exciting to watch. But um, yeah, I think another thing with this class that is impressive and stands out in a way that we haven't seen in in years is the, quality and quantity of the college shortstops. I mean, Jacob Gonzalez might be the best college shortstop prospect since 2015 with Dansby Swanson and Bregman. We, we typically don't get great college shortstop prospects because like I mentioned previously, the industry loves toolsy high school shortstops. So the best of those profiles are typically signing before they get to college. And this year we have one, two, three, four, um, five or six college shortstops who are already in first round conversation, two of whom are in the top 10. Um, Jacob Gonzalez, like I said, I think is, is one of the better college shortstop prospects we've seen in a while, has power, left-handed, um, good arm strength in the field, maybe is going to be a guy who moves off third. I've had some conflicting feedback on on whether or not teams like him at shortstop, but I mean, to me, he made all the plays you want a shortstop to make with Team USA as their shortstop. He's been the back-to-back Team USA starting shortstop. And then you have a guy like Jacob Wilson, who maybe is not your prototypical prospect, but he's he's an outlier contact guy. He's struck out at, at just a 5% rate, I think is the number, over the last two years. Um, never strikes out, uh, has, has a fantastic pure hitting ability. He's smaller. He doesn't have a ton of power. But I think he's got a frame where he can add a little bit more power moving forward. And I think most people feel pretty comfortable about him sticking at shortstop. 
and, and he was another guy who just blew people away with Team USA. He's got some pull pop and he showed it with a wood bat, which was impressive. Um, but yeah, I, I just think this class has a lot going for it. Um, even if maybe there's not a, a Dylan Lesko on the high school pitching side, I think that maybe is the one area where, where teams maybe have some questions who's like that top high school pitcher. Uh, but I think teams also would rather just have a college pitcher they could feel more comfortable about up top. You know, like Noble Meyer would fit as that elite high school pitcher. I think he's your your, your top candidate right now, but I don't know that he's in the top 10 at this point. I mean, maybe it wouldn't surprise me if there were some people who had him in the top 10 and, and maybe it's just a case of, of because there's so much quality college hitting in the top 10, he's just pushed out naturally, but I don't know that he's the the same pitching prospect that, that Dylan Lesko was a year ago. Um, I mean, he doesn't seem as well-rounded at this point. I, I think he's, he established himself as the top high school pitcher in the class. And at his best, he's shown two seventies in his fastball and slider combination, but he hasn't used the changeup as often. And I don't think any high school pitcher needs to have a Dylan Lesko or a Brock Porter changeup by any means. But I think there are more questions with his overall profile and track record. Dylan Lesko certainly had had just been that guy. He'd been a stud for years. I think teams felt pretty good about. And and again, I think like Chase Dolander is this year, Dylan Lesko is is the sort of prospect you would create in a lab if you're making a pitching prospect. I think there are still some questions I I, I imagine the industry has with Noble Meyer related to a third pitch, related to the command. Um at his best has been really good, but it's also been inconsistent and maybe below average at times. He is a guy with longer levers. I think the athleticism is good enough that he'll have solid or better control at the end of the day, but it, it's not the sort of Dylan Lesko command by any means. Yeah, no, I don't think he's at the level that Dylan Lesko was uh, at this time last year, but I, I think he's pretty comfortably a a. A first round pick who maybe, you know, yeah. high school I, pitching gets moved down the board, but you know, I think of him same. more to Mick Abel, I think at the, at the right. same time, like a Mick Abel or Andrew Painter type um, at this point in the year. Bill, and this is really just why I think harping on, on why I like Dylan Lesko so much. He was just such a good pitching prospect uh, at the time. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Ben, because I've had this conversation with scouts um, and, and I have a feeling I know where you land on this. Um, but I also think we might have diverging opinions on it. How do you view Max Clark and Walker Jenkins? They're the two um, top high school players in the class, both pretty pretty consensus top top 10 prospects. Um, Max Clark might be one of the more famous players we've had out of high school, uh, at least since Blaze Jordan, uh, who, is, who is pretty famous. But I think Max Clark is a much better prospect at this point than Blaze Jordan was at any point in his amateur career. And then Walker Jenkins um, maybe doesn't have the same name recognition uh, around just general baseball fans, but he made Team USA's underclass team or Team USA's 18U team as an underclassman. And I think for me, he has the best hit and power combination of the high school players in this class. But just how do you view those two and who who do you prefer? I'll say on our rankings right now, we have Clark five and Jenkins six. Um, so it's not like there's a ton of separation here. I think he might be even more famous than, than Blaze Jordan was. Yeah. It wouldn't sur- I just time. remember Blaze was such a phenomenon for those home run videos, but Walker Jenkins, or excuse me, Max Clark, it, it almost seems like he's got a 
a production crew with him at all times. <laughs> he does. He, <laughs> he does a good job with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think both of them are one-on-one type candidates. That's that's how much I like them. And it's it's tough when you have the, you know, especially the two college monsters like Dolander and and Dylan Cruz and, and what they've done already in the SEC. But I mean, I, I don't know who I would pick, honestly, between Clark and Jenkins. I'd probably give the slight edge to Clark. But I mean, at the same time, like you said, Jenkins, I mean, it, it is, I think, the best combination of hitting ability and, and power. I mean, he just has a level of power that Clark does not have and that, frankly, very very few hitters in the entire country have. I think he's a 30-plus home run type hitter. I think he has a pretty good idea of the strike zone. His his swing works really well. He's able to get on plane with the pitch and really just has a knack for driving the ball with impact, not just to the pole side, but to the opposite field as well. And he's He's had that for for at least the last couple of years from from following him. He's he's and he's big. He's physical. He's athletic. He has good defensive instincts too. Where he's not, he doesn't have the type of speed that Max Clark has. I think Max Clark is a short bet, um, or I should say, a very very high probability bet. There's there's no sure, sure things, but uh, to play center field and I think Clark could be a plus defender in center field whereas Walker Jenkins most likely I think ends up as a corner outfielder but a potentially plus defender in a corner and I would you know if I if I signed him I I would and I were a club I would, I would run him out in in center field and let him continue to play out there because he does have really good instincts out there um so I, I think he he might even have more more upside than than Dylan Cruz, uh, but obviously Cruz has more more track record at the you know having done it in the SEC. But I think anybody who's watched a lot of Walker Jenkins has seen him perform at an extremely high level uh, as well. Obviously, not the same caliber of of competition, but. Clark is uh he's just such a well-rounded player and and a well-rounded player with with great tools too. Uh like Ted talked about his defense in center field, great athlete, speed, uh strong arm. It's uh a chance to be a I think a plus defender in, in center field with with good instincts and and range out there and uh, the, the the pure hitting ability too is is really really advanced um just excellent hand-eye coordination very rare to see him swing and miss fastball breaking ball uh all throughout the strike zone really good play coverage uh, i think the question with him is game power Right. Yep. I mean, I, I think if you watch him take BP and he unloads on one, you can see he has raw power in there. But his his approach in games is to spread the ball around the field and, 
you know, put the ball in play, even sometimes that, that just means hitting a ground ball to the opposite side and, you know, relying on that plus plus speed to beat out a, an infield hit sometimes. Um, so I think just as he evolves and, and matures as a hitter, uh, kind of like we were talking about with Cam Collier yep. earlier, there's, you know, he makes a, a ton of contact and he has a good offensive approach for for his age but as he continues to get stronger and evolve as a hitter you're going to see him learn which balls to uh, let go instead of just just putting it in play for you know moderate type contact and and wait for his pitch to drive and and pull in the air for for damage so you know when he when he goes out and, and makes his pro debut um you know, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to see, well, that's, you know, you're, you're not going to see big, big power numbers in games right away. But by the time he, you know, gets into his, you know, early to mid twenties and really matures as a hitter, I think you will see some 25 plus home run seasons with him, which is why I think he's a, you know, a legitimate one-on-one type candidate too. Yeah, I mean, you you summarized these guys and and went into detail as, as good as anyone could, Ben. And I think you you've probably seen them as much as as anyone at this point. I think one of my biggest uh, laments of last summer is the fact that Walker Jenkins had a handmade injury, and I couldn't see him much more uh, beyond the PDP league. But his just his batting practice was extremely impressive at the PDP. I think we were both actually at that same BP, but he was mm-hmm. just consistently hammering balls deep to center field. It was gap to gap, easy power. I mean, I've talked about swings that I like in the past and there's an underclassman, a 2024 prospect who we might talk about on this podcast that I love his swing. But I think if I were to pick like an individual swing that I love the most in the 2023 class so far, it might be Walker Jenkins. It is just so easy and so simple. The bat speed is, is, is impressive it's a simple, small leg kick and fire. Uh, it's leverage for power. It just looks like a picturesque left-handed slugging hitter's swing. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, Clark, like you mentioned, just does everything well. And he's also a very physical kid. You talk about the power, power being the biggest question with him. That's certainly the case, but he is much more physical than, than a Pete Crow Armstrong was at the same time or much more physical than a Drew Jones at the same time. So there certainly is raw power in the tank. I think to your point, it's just going to be a matter of intention. Like what is he trying to be as a hitter um, and, and how the swing naturally develops as he ages? Um, Because to your point, he has no problem at all. Just slapping a weekly hit ground ball the other way and turning in a four one Oh down the first baseline and, and getting on that way. So Two very exciting players to have at the top of the list for the high school class. Uh, and, and we'll now, see. Now I'm thinking about my favorite swings from the class. I, I agree with you on Jenkins. I put the Kevin other one McGon- I like is you're going to say McGonagall. Okay. I was going to yeah. say Aiden Miller. And, and Miller, I don't think is a, a picturesque swing by any means, but I love the velocity of the swing. And I love how his hand hitch and bat tip is almost a timing. I think it is a timing mechanism for him. And typically we, we cite those mechanical cues in a negative connotation, but I think for him, it's, it's never been an issue. And, and just the, the pure bat speed and force and power that he has with his swing. It's a little bit bigger of a leg kick, 
than Walker Jenkins, but I, I am very high on Aiden Miller. And I'm curious if you would take Aiden Miller overall, uh, over Kevin McGonagall, who, who I guess is your, your swing that you love. Um, both these players we have in the 10 to 20 range right now on our list. Yeah. I just, I love Kevin McGonagall. I think he'd be, I, I think Clark and Jenkins are like the clear cut top two high school players mm-hmm. in, in the country. And then McGonagall is, is right behind them. He's just, he's just a barrel machine every time it's, it's only it's, so... it's only fitting ben that we restart this podcast and you just wax poetic about this <laughs> short hitter <laughs> he's, he's it's just consistent quality at bats so so fundamentally sounds it, the swing is so it's short compact adjustable it's it's such an accurate swing you, you rarely see him swing and miss he's he's not that big but there's some surprising sting in there for his size just really high baseball iq I, i'm probably more optimistic than most that he could be able to play shortstop I, I i like his actions and his internal clock at shortstop but you know i don't if he goes a second or, or maybe a third as like an alex bregman type third baseman I think as bad as is going to play anywhere but it's just such a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful swing I think if I had to go for for right-handed swing though I'd probably go with Gavin Grahovic who's a yeah mini Paul Goldschmidt yeah uh yeah just in terms of like yeah like a pure like that swing or like that Spencer Torkelson type Mm -hmm. swing with him plays kind of all over the place, some infield, some outfield. Uh, I don't know where it's gonna end up, but it's just such a some catcher. Yeah, some catcher. I mean, it's just such a hitterish looking guy. You don't see, you know, you typically think of these like we talk about these lefties as as pretty swings. Mm-hmm. He just has a pretty, pretty right-handed swing. Yeah, those are all good ones. Uh, I'm excited about the class. How about the 2024s, Ben? Um, should we be excited about this class? You just had your updated top 100 list, which I would encourage you all to check out on the website. Ben has really in-depth, detailed, uh, and updated scouting reports for all of these prospects. But there is a player who I love, another beautiful left-handed swing in the top three of this class. But I guess really quickly, was there a clear number one? And how is the the 24 class on the high school side shaping up at this point? Yeah, we we were just talking about Jenkins and Clark kind of being the clear cut top of the 2023 class. And if we were going back a year ago at this time, we would have, and I think probably did on this podcast say say the same thing. Uh, this year, I, I, for 2024, it's a lot more open. I don't think there's a clear cut number one or you know two players who really stand head and shoulders above the rest of the class. I mean, there's a group of, you know, five, six, seven or so players who could be arguably number one on the list and and a whole bunch of other players who are a little bit deeper down the order right now who could jump into that top 10, top five group overall. So there wasn't uh, a clear number one. But the the player we do have at number one is uh, Connor Griffin, who's super talented and was originally a 2025 player. He reclassified 
at the end of his high school season last year to be in the 2024 class. And it's, it's just a really great mix of tools and, you know, strength projections still to go in his six foot four build great athlete. And, and he's performed at a pretty high level in games too. So, um, you know, six foot four, 190 pounds, right-handed hitter, uh, has played, you know, some shortstop, outfield, uh, gets down the mound and, you know, is already into the low 90s and then could be throwing even harder. But I, I think his his future is, is somewhere as a position player, power, speed, uh, just a really, you know, bouncy, springy type athlete too where uh, it's already – impressive tools and you can just see the the strength projection for you know some of those uh some of those tools to to jump and get to you know if if not plus to to 70 great tools down the road yeah he sounds like just a freak all around with with the size with the athleticism Mm -hmm. with the tools with the baseball skill young for the class uh, the guy that I've probably seen the most of this class, um, you have at number three, and that's Orange Lutheran High School outfielder Derek Curiel. Uh, he played on the same team as Mikey Romero, who the Red Sox took in the first round this past year's draft. I think Curiel probably has maybe the prettiest swing that I've seen since, like at least Zach Veen, maybe, maybe even going further back. I, I just think he's got a beautiful swing from the left side. Like you write in the report, it's, it's quick, it's fluid. Um, he's got good back control. I've seen him just hit everywhere, every event I've seen him. So I imagine he's one of the best pure hitters in the class, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was also impressed with, yeah, just, just the, the amount of pop that he showed at the, uh, underclass area code games, or he might've even been on the, the upper class teams. I can't remember exactly, but seeing him hit at San Diego's stadium and granted the ball does travel a bit further there than it does in long beach where, where the area codes was previously, but he's hit a few balls that he's squared up and, and driven to the gaps and, and the opposite gap as well that I was pretty surprised with. Cause he, he's not the biggest, most physical player now, but I think he's got a chance to grow into solid pop in addition to just being a, a really pure hitter and I think a solid defender as well, but he he's my early personal favorite in the class just because the swing is so pretty. And because I've just seen him constantly perform. Yeah. I mean, he has a pretty good case to be number one on this list. Like we said, there's no obvious number one, but you could certainly put him there and true center fielder. Just everything is easy, easy swing, easy actions in the outfield glides around there. Good instincts for the game and, just an easy, easy swing. And, and like you kind of alluded to, it's, it's a lot of contact in games, good play coverage. If the ball is in, it's, it's a compact swing that he can keep his hands inside of and and pull it to right field. Or if it's the pitch on the outer third, he's very comfortable sending it to the opposite field for, uh, you know, for a line drive that way too. So um, the, the, thing those two have in common is they're both committed to to LSU. Which yeah, is definitely. I was going to mention another, that. They're a, another theme. That program is just desperately looking for talent as well. So it's good on them for finally getting a few 
blue chippers in their recruiting class. Unlikely they'll get to campus, but just just good for the uh, plucky LSU program to uh, to get some guys like this to commit. Because yeah, could but use it. you know, at the same time, we would have said that about Dylan Cruz. At You're this right. Time. I think Dylan no, Cruz would have been. It was, um, and I'm I'm blanking on all the people in that class at this point, but he was certainly one of the top three high school hitters in the class at this point. Like at the same time, we're talking about these 2025s. At that time, he was he was one of the better hitters in the class. So, yeah, I think at that time we had him number two uh-huh. in the class. So th- this far out, you know, so many things can can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's unlikely that those two get to campus, and there's a good chance both of them could be first round picks. But again, would have said the same thing about about Dylan Cruz at, at this time. And then yeah. you know they have those two in their recruiting class. They have Kate Aaron Beatty, uh, a catcher also ranked in the top 10 in their, in their class. He does. I mean, I don't know how much more you want to see from a, a catcher on the defensive side at 17 years old beyond what, you know, Kate Aaron Beatty does. It's, it's, uh, how does I he mean, compare probably... to Drew Romo defensively? Cause Drew Romo is definitely the best defensive catcher I've seen in high school. And it, it sounds like Kate is, is, is pretty terrific back there. Yeah. I, I think he's, right up there with him. Um, that's high praise. That's that's and, uh Pete Crow Armstrong, Drew Jones caliber defense we're talking about for high school players. That's that's insane. I mean he has I mean if, if you're conservative, he has a plus arm. It's it it at least at the very least plays above plus because his his footwork, his transfer, his exchange are are so good. It's I mean you see players posting on social media or other people posting about players or catchers on social media and their pop times. And it's like, Oh, this kid has a one eight four pop time or a one nine one pop. No, like that's in a showcase where he's, you know, not wearing half his gear and he's reaching and he's out standing up the behind plate. the plate. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, you know that 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 doesn't count. This is in games. He's like consistently getting pop times under one point nine seconds. I mean, you can time his transfer. It's it's right on par with some of the best catchers in the big leagues. It's 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 super super advanced defensively. Now he still is a high school catcher, right? There's a lot of risk that comes with it, um, but it's also not like he's just an in, in all glove, no, no offense catcher either. He has, you know, pretty significant power, especially for uh, you know, a 17-year-old high school catcher. So you're talking about a, a potential 20 plus home run threat. Um, there's there's a lot of risk, like we just said, that that comes with high school catching, but you, you have to be uh, or feel very comfortable, especially on the defensive side with him. So I mean that's that's three LSU commits in the top 10. I think they have like five or so in, in the top 25, some, yeah. some good arms and Landon Victoria and, and Cass and Evans. And uh, they have the most top 100 players in, in their recruiting class, nine overall. So um, these, I mean, I, 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 I don't know, but I, I would suspect they'll probably be our, our preseason 
number one team for yeah i, I think you could probably baseball. bet on that one pretty confidently if you wanted to yeah uh, so they're they're hitting the transfer portal hard they're recruiting the high school classes extremely well um it's just a it's just a dynamite program right now yeah, uh, that'll be one of the things we talk about on this podcast throughout the years is how LSU is, is handling their expectations because they are probably going to have the largest expectations a college team has had in, in college baseball in, in a very long time, at least since one of the these dominant Florida teams that were built around really impressive pitching staffs. And I think they've got to be on paper one of the most talented teams this century, I would imagine, just because it's a different it's a different ball game in college baseball now with the NIL, with the transfer portal, um, they're, they're just super loaded with talent and it, it really anything, but a, a college world series championship, I imagine will be disappointing for fans of LSU. Um, and it's really not, not that crazy to see why, I mean, their team is just insane. They're going to have a number of first round picks from this, this program this year, next year, and three years from now. So do you think even more so than Tennessee last year in terms of first round picks or just in terms of the level of talent or expectations yeah i think this is this is an interesting conversation because tennessee was was truly dominant on the field but they did not enter the year with the sort of expectations that lsu is entering the year with i think even even a few weeks into the season i don't know that people necessarily realized how much of a juggernaut that tennessee team was and a lot of it was because some of their their pitching staff I mean, Blade Tidwell went down early on and was expected to be the ace. And then all of a sudden they have three aces pitching every day throughout the weekend. They hit more home runs than anyone. They had the lowest ERA in college baseball. Um, yeah, they were the sort of team that I imagine LSU is expected to be. So that that contrast of of expectations and, and actual performance. And, and I mean, in hindsight, we know Tennessee was good, but at this point last year, we didn't expect them to be the sort of team that they were. And and certainly Tennessee not winning a college baseball championship was disappointing because they were the overwhelming favorites. Uh, but it's very hard in, in the college baseball world series, the way the tournament and the postseason works for the top team to win. And I think at this level, experience really does matter a lot. Like having older players filling out, um, the roster and 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 kind of having those role players filling the gaps. LSU is going to rely on a lot of players who who are experienced, but they have some younger players as well who are just highly touted and maybe haven't put everything together just yet. I think of a guy like um, Christian Little, who who's not necessarily young, but he's certainly a player who has a lot of expectations and hasn't fully been this sort of player that everyone expected him to be when he enrolled early at Vanderbilt. He's kind of bounced between roles. Um, so maybe LSU is is a place where he can kind of solidify himself. But you've got a guy like Paul Skeens, who, I mean, is one of the better two-way prospects probably since Brendan McKay in, in college baseball. And he's coming from just massively performing on both sides of the plate at Air Force and now is going to try to do that um, in the SEC. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how how that performance translates. Jacob Berry was able to go from the Pac-12 to the SEC and basically be the exact same player. Um, Going from Air Force to LSU is probably a little bit different than the Pac-12 to LSU, but it's still a change. You still have to adjust to the SEC competition. Uh, But yeah, they just have a lot of big names and and they're going to have a target on their backs. Every every weekend, you know, every team they play is going to, they're going to play with a little bit more fire just because of how people are talking about LSU. Um, So that'll be 
super fascinating. It's got to be the top storyline in college baseball, I would imagine. I mean, they're they're just so fun on paper, and a lot of people are going to hate them. So it'll be a blast. Can't wait for the college season to get started. Yeah, and then Tennessee bring in Malia Huna. They've got seven players on this top 100 ranking for the high school class for 2024. So I really like the recruiting classes. Yeah, it that, really that seems like – Tony Vitello just does an awesome job with with recruiting and and just developing players as well. They they really seem to to know how to get talent and they've really turned the program around in the last few years. Yeah, it, and it's you know not that these teams have like accomplished you know anywhere near enough to be like dynasty teams or or anything like that, but certainly just the just on pure talent that they have, it, they just seem so loaded like these super teams do you think having these again I, I don't know that i would call them a super team yet but uh, you know assuming a couple years or a few years down the road if they're able to keep up this level of talent through recruiting at the high school level hitting the transfer portal developing the players that they that they do have on campus and and they turn into these consistent winners do you think it's good for college baseball to have uh juggernaut teams like that? I think it's good because it'll get college baseball a lot of attention, both both negatively and positively. Like I think MLB is good for having the Yankees dominate because Yankees fans love it and a lot of people love to hate the Yankees and root against the Yankees. You might make the case that no, you don't necessarily want to have one team winning constantly. You don't want to have teams feel like they can never win, but I, I really don't think that's ever the case in baseball. Just, just given how the sport plays out in smaller stretches and in single game series. So I do think it's good for college baseball. I think a lot of college coaches would probably disagree with me because it can't be fun to recruit a player that you really like who gets good and then leaves when he's getting good. And you're trying to build around that. But I think, in the same way that that a coach can leave to pursue a better opportunity, I think it's great that players can. And I do think that from my perspective, it's certainly a selfish one, but having as many good players in the SEC is good. Like from a draft perspective, I want to see the best players in the country facing the best competition. And it's certainly always been the case that some conferences are better than others. I don't know where the line is where it goes too far or or if there even is a line where it goes too far. I think I could probably be convinced that there there might be a tipping point. Um, but so far, I think it's only positive. Like, I don't know why if a guy like Tommy White, for whatever reason, doesn't want to play for NC State anymore and can find a good opportunity elsewhere, why that's a negative. I, there are, there, are, there are winners and losers in whatever system you have, and I think this one, with allowing more player freedom and allowing players to take advantage of their talents in a way that their coaches have long been able to, is probably positive, but I I just want to see good baseball at the end of the day. <laughs> what do you think? And I think if you are, if you're also just a, if you're just a baseball fan in general, and it's, you know, March and you're just looking for baseball. Like if, if, if I know I just flip on 
an LSU game or if I flip on a Tennessee game and I'm probably, or, you know, a Vanderbilt game and in certain instances, like, or, you know, other programs too, the, the more loaded they are, the more compelling those teams are going to be to watch, even if you're not, yeah. say, an LSU fan. All right, I'll flip on the game and I'll watch, I'll watch Paul Skeen's pitch and I, I'll, I'll watch Dylan Cruz. And, you know, I know I'm going to watch three or four other guys are going to be first round picks or, you know, top two rounds picks for this year and, and probably the following years also. So it probably just gets more or has the potential to get more fans, people who aren't, you know, diehard college baseball fans. Yes. Give them an entry point into into the game it's a little bit easier to ease into rather than if the talent is more spread out and, and dispersed around the country and it's great you know if, if you have you know smaller programs that you know still have an opportunity to go uh deep into into omaha um that's i, I think that's good too obviously i see the merit to to that but it just as far as getting more fans interested in college baseball giving giving a, an opportunity to watch a, a potential super team of, of guys where, you know, you're going to be watching a bunch of future big leaguers Yes, uh, is, is a positive thing. I, I think you're 100% right because people who are fans of baseball, but are not necessarily college baseball fans. It is much more interesting to them. I would imagine to hear of a team like LSU, who's loaded with talent and maybe you're a fan of the Pirates and you're really itching for baseball to come back and it's spring training and you want to watch real games, but you know that Dylan Cruz is playing with LSU and you know that he's one of the favorites to be the number one overall pick. You might turn on an LSU game because you're ready for baseball and just watching them because you have that LSU entry point or whatever the dominant team is in any given year, you give them that entry point and you find out, oh, hey, this is fun baseball to watch too. It's not major league baseball. It's not professional baseball. Um, but there's a lot of things to like about the college game uh, and, and college baseball in general is positioned in a, just a great window to attract more fans, given that the season is starting earlier. And, and there are plenty of people who are just can't wait for the regular season in the major leagues to get started. And you have college baseball on and no one who's not a college baseball fan is going to be like, oh, I'm really excited for this SEC conference play because of all the parody in the league. Like college baseball purists <laughs> might love that. Like the coaches might love that the competitors themselves on the field might love that, but that, that is not a great way to have someone find an entry point into the game. I don't, I don't think now maybe, maybe it actually is, but, but I would imagine just the star power and having a loaded team uh, both to, to cheer for and love, and maybe even to root against like it's, it's fine to, to have teams that you root for and teams that you root against. Um, yeah. I was just going to say it's almost probably a, good thing to have a lot of people who hate tennessee or who are yeah I, hate, I think it is hate lsu it makes the tennessee vanderbilt rivalry more more interesting it makes tennessee just as a program more interesting the storylines are fun like at the end of the day it's entertainment and and i think this this stuff is a lot of fun and i i'm not i'm not too hurt over the new the new system in baseball um, yeah, we, we saw a couple point. of years ago with, I mean, with Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker, when they were pitching, it was a big deal. Like, it wasn't just college baseball, it wasn't just Vanderbilt or SEC fans who were 
who were paying attention, it was like everybody in baseball was waiting to see what those two guys were going to do. And it's, you know, certainly have both taken different paths than we would have maybe mm-hmm. expected since then, but it got a lot of, got a lot of attention when those two guys were on the mound. Yes. And I would imagine this year, the LSU Tennessee series is going to be a massively watched series. I think it's March 28th through 31st or March 30th through April 1st, excuse me. Um, so maybe not, maybe not the ideal time of the calendar compared to major league baseball. Will major league baseball be started then actually it might, it might be started just after that, but either way, that series you're going to get, hopefully praying to the baseball gods that we don't have the same college pitcher injuries. Um, and we get a chase Dolander, Dylan Cruz, um, and LSU matchup that, that will be a fantastic matchup for college baseball and also a fantastic matchup for for casual baseball fans or non-college specific baseball fans to watch because you are going to see players who in a few months will be drafted very early and will have a lot of hype around them and currently do have a lot of hype around them. Yeah, that's, I think they're going up against MLB opening day on that one. So that oh, might be, gotta be kidding me. How do we do this? Come on, SEC. SEC, flip, flip this game. Make it the first SEC weekend of college baseball. Oh man. Missed opportunity there, Ben. Can we get the uh can we get the scheduling people on the pod and, and ask them why? Why they did that. You might have more pull than uh, I do on that one. I don't think I have any pull there, but this was a fun convo, Ben. Is there anything else that we haven't chatted about, or can we wrap this up? Uh yeah. No, it's uh it's good to be back. Like we said at the top of the show, I didn't want to come back in and um do one podcast or do one episode in uh, November 4th and then take, you know, three weeks off while Carlos was traveling or I was traveling or yeah, something people like are gonna that. People are going to not so, trust us. <laughs> yeah. Want to make sure we get back into a, a regular weekly frequency. So uh, this is, this is what I guess this will be season two of future projection. Yeah. We can call it season two episode 33. Thank you guys for, for sticking with us. Thank you for listening. Um, if you have not purchased your Baseball America Prospect Handbook, you can still buy those. Um, and like we talked about earlier in the show, purchase it through us. You'll get it quicker. You'll get a, a PDF with your purchase. So any fantasy leagues or, or just if you want to get access to that information sooner, dive into some of the players that we chatted about today. Definitely do that. Uh, I, I personally think it's it's the most detailed and the best prospect handbook that that we've done since I've been here. Obviously, the goal every year is to continue improving, to continue continue getting better. Um, I just think the quality of the reports is, is better than we've ever had. So I was really impressed with just what the staffers and the, the different freelancers who help make this project happen, uh, just blown away by the quality of information. And I loved learning about all these players who, um, I have some feel for, but get, get greater detail and, and greater feel for, um, on the college side, we've got college preview stuff coming up. We've got updated rankings for, Various draft classes, 2023, 2024, and then 2025 will be coming here soon as well before the college season gets started. We're still rolling out top 10s, updated top 10s. After that, it'll be top 100 season and then full top 30s on the website. So again, January is a very exciting time on the baseball calendar, despite no baseball being played. Um, It's a fun time for us. We're glad to be back on this podcast. Uh, And we're excited uh, to continue talking with you guys and having these conversations 
with you guys throughout the year. So thanks for listening. Thanks for reviewing if you have. Um, Yeah, just appreciate it. For Ben, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody.